Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 12. We'll be there in a few moments. Going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Going to read the entire chapter today. What a unique story. And uh, application may not be readily apparent here today. These texts are challenging for the preacher, um, especially if we're not going to go topical and, and try to stay textual, which I'll try to do that today. Um, but I'm sure the Lord has something here for us this morning. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. What an unceremonious death. We don't know anything about it. Unlike Stephen and this martyr's death, we just told James, the first apostle, to die. And the Bible says, verse 3, And because he saw it pleased the Jews... He proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. And that implies execution. So this is about the same time that Jesus would have died. Um, he was going to execute Peter. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side, and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell from his hands. Now, there's something here a side sermon about to be able to sleep under these conditions. Uh, but Peter could do that. And the angel said to him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he said unto him, Cast thy garments about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but, brought, but thought he saw a vision. So Peter thinks he's dreaming. When they were past the first and second ward, they came into the iron gate, which leadeth into the city, which opened to them on its own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectations of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. So, this is from John Mark's mother. This would have been Barnabas's cousin, um, where many were gathered together praying. And Peter knocked at the door of the gate, and the damsel came to hearken, named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, <laughs> this is almost comical, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, this is faith and practice, thou art mad. <laughs> but she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, or relented, is the idea, it is his angel. Um, the Jews believed in a type of guardian angel, and so they think this is Peter's angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with his hand to hold their peace, in other words, keep it quiet, I'm a guy on the run, let's not draw attention, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren, and departed and went into another place. By the way, this James is the half-brother of Jesus, who was about to become the new leader of the Jerusalem church. And so this text transitions from Peter to James as far as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers, what was become of Peter. And when Herod 
had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king chamberlain, their friend, desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. In other words, these two city-states received grain from this king, and it had stopped, and they were coming here to petition through his assistant that that would be reinstated. Verse 21, And upon a set day Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms, and gave up the ghost. <clears throat> it's a bad way to die. Um, but the word of the God grew and multiplied. And by the way, that verse is the crux of the whole chapter. All that said, to say this, but the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, today with a renewed way of expressing that, we're grateful for the electricity. We're grateful for the work you've done in our homes this past week. Lord, thank you for the love this church has shown. And Lord, just to be here, assembled together in a way that we maybe take for granted. I pray, Lord, that the time already has been profitable. And that, Lord, these next few moments together, Lord, we could look into this text and, and Lord, leave here. Lord, encouraged in some way. Lord, making some correction in our life where we need it. And Lord, just aligning ourselves with your work. And I ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing for that length of time. I appreciate that so much. As we all know, the book of Acts is a history written by Luke of the early church in Jerusalem and the advancement of the gospel beyond the city of Jerusalem to Samaria and to Judea. And of course, then the outermost parts of the earth at that time would have been primarily of the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. This theme of the advancement of the gospel is stated over and over in the book of Acts. We find it here again in verse number 24, where the Bible has this conjunction and says, but in the midst of all these events, the word of the God of God grew and multiplied. And that's the big idea we carry throughout the book of, book of Acts, and of course the narrative that we're reading this morning. However, this theme is colored and filled with stories that accompany and parallel the advancement of the gospel. And we're glad for that. It's interesting to see the events that are happening as the gospel on its trajectory throughout the world is occurring. And our study today is one of those stories. And the application here is a bit challenging, but I think there's something here for us. And there's lessons to be found in all the Word of God and in chapter 12 of the book of Acts as well. One of the chief means of the advancement of the gospel that we have seen up to this point has been the persecution of the church, um, at least for taking the gospel to places beyond Jerusalem. The book of Acts tells us that the early disciples filled Jerusalem with their teaching. And we have been introduced into these numbers of 100, 200, 500, and thousands. And very likely the church in Jerusalem was now filled with tens of thousands of converted Jews who are now serving the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. But the city, though saturated, the rest of the area had not yet been. And God had intended for the gospel to be taken into all the world. But under the persecution initiated by Saul, who would become Paul, and which culminated in the stoning of Stephen, 
the early church began to scatter from Jerusalem. Those who most likely had come to Jerusalem for the holidays and decided to stay after they were saved now are being driven back home under this persecution. And they went to many different places in the Middle East. But a particular note, many of the people flew, uh, uh, fled back to a place called Antioch. Now, Antioch is north of Jerusalem. It's up in a place called what would be modern-day Turkey today. And it became a new epicenter of Christianity. It would become the second most prominent church, really probably in the entire New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. There was a substantial Jewish population in Antioch, historically, as well as a great uh, Grecian population. Uh, Antioch is the third largest city, or was the third largest city in Rome. A lot of uh, streets and roads came through Antioch, meaning that many roads would go out from Antioch. And it became really the home base, the launching pad for the ministry and the three missionary uh, journeys of Paul and Barnabas in the future. It was a place where Greeks were saved in great number, and a place where the, the church in Jerusalem rejoiced that the gospel had been taken to the Greeks. But in the midst of all this growth, of course, we know as a side story, Saul was saved on the Damascus Road, became Paul. And of course, his uh, accomplishments uh, are known. The gospel was taken to Samaria by Philip, and we've studied that. And after these events, Paul, you know, being converted, settled down, no more persecution. There was a, a, a respite for the church. I don't know how many years, there have been a, a number of years where the church was allowed to settle and begin to grow and then advance. But that didn't last long. Years later, King Herod, this would, be, this would have been King Herod Agrippa I, which I know doesn't mean a lot to us, but that's just who we're talking about, stretched forth his hand, as the Bible says, to vex a certain of the church. So this would have been reminiscent of the uh, kind of persecution that Paul initiated years earlier. But he did so for very different reasons. He wasn't really a protectorate of the Jewish faith like Paul thought he was being. Um, he, he had his own interest in mind. Herod, or the Herods, is actually the name of a dy dynastic family in Palestine in this age. There are many Herods. The one that we'd be most familiar with would be Herod the Great. And of course, Herod the Great was a great builder. For those going to Israel uh, next year, you, you'll go to Caesarea, you'll see the Colosseum that Herod the Great built. Um, he was a great builder in those days, but he's most infamous for the fact that when the wise men were coming to seek the Messiah, Jesus, he heard about that and in jealousy had all the firstborn Hebrew boys slain. And the man we're talking about here is his grandson, Agrippa I. This man, Herod, was held in, of course, greater esteem than his grandfather would have been. Um, I can't remember if his mother and or his grandmother, that I think the text says, um, she was a Jew. So he had some Jewish blood, which endeared him to some of them. But Herod had a unique motivation. He was a vassal, uh, if you will, of Caesar. He was, in other words, he was allowed to rule Palestine under the favor of Caesar. So keeping Caesar happy was important, and keeping Caesar happy, he could do this by keeping the Jews happy. This is the idea. He was all about appeasing the Jews, and the Jews were appeased, and they were happy, it created no stir for him, and that made Caesar happy. So this is really self-serving. He's not being magnanimous here at all. He, he's really just uh, serving his own, ser his own um, purposes. 
And so he's thinking, I know the Jews have great angst with this rising new religion called Christianity. And maybe if I begin to persecute that sect, the Jews will be happier because they were in a stir over all of this. And so that's what he does. And he reaches out for one of the top apostles. Of course, James, Peter, and John would have been that trio. And uh, I guess the opportunity afforded itself. And he, uh, he was able to abduct James. And we have very little detail. But he kills him. He murders him with a sword, the Bible says. And um, the Jews were happy about it. They, they liked that. And so we're told that he gained applause in verse 3 over that. And so he decided, well, if that makes him happy, I'll just do more. So he apprehended Peter as well. And this is the third time Peter's been in jail. He's no stranger to jail. And the last time he was in jail, another angel rescued him out. And so I don't know what kind of fear, if any, I doubt he had any Peter. He was sleeping, so no doubt very little. But Herod's intentions were to slay him in the same way he slew um, James. So knowing this man's history of being able to escape, he puts four quantories of soldiers, that's four times four, that's 16 soldiers, two chained to him, two at the door, and there was this rotation probably of this four groups watching him. I mean, he had this guy sealed up, or so he thought. So he holds him to, to the conclusion of basically what's Passover. And he did this for another reason, a selfishness. All, you know, we, we learned earlier, Jews... Uh, migrated to Jerusalem during this season and really to the point of probably a million people. So slaying Peter during the, the end of this holiday would have got him the most attention among the largest number of Jews. And so he's propping himself by this date and choosing to slay Peter on this date. But from there, the story kind of takes a bizarre twist and turns. It's almost comedic in certain places. In the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord appears in prison and stays on the eve of his execution, this by rescuing Peter. An angel enters his cell, incapacitates the guards in some manner, and he commands the sleeping and slumbering Peter to wake up and get dressed. He miraculously escorts him out the open doors that just begin to open for them, and he deposits Peter in the middle of the city and leaves. <laughs> and Peter's thinking, what in the world? And he finally realizes this is not a dream, it's not a vision, this is actually happen, happening. So he runs to the home of John Mark's mother. This could have been the sister of Barnabas, but John Mark is the nephew of Barnabas. It's a place obviously where church members met. And it just so happens that a large delegation of disciples were there praying for the release of Peter. And so they were all praying. Well, Peter begins to rap on the door. And no doubt Christians were being guarded this moment because of this new persecution of Herod. Uh, this servant, Rhoda, inquires who's at the door, and he says, it's Peter. Well, she was happy about that, so happy that she didn't open the door, and ran back to the, the praying delegation and says, Peter's at the door. And they said, in a very spiritual way, you've got to be crazy. And she insisted, and they finally relented, well, his is angel, and angels are prevalent all throughout the book of Acts, and they, they believe um, that people have a guardian angel, and that's beside the point, but that's what they believed. And they thought maybe it's Peter's angel there to deliver some message. So, with some more persuasion, they go to the door and, in fact, discovered that it was Peter. And they begin to rejoice so much that Peter had to say, hey, calm down, don't get me caught again. And this is, you know, we need to be quiet. 
But interesting, the book of Acts chapter 12 is, is a transition because we don't hear about Peter again until Acts 15, and then really not much after at all. And so it's a book of transition. So we're really going from Peter's leadership to James, the half-brother of Jesus, the eldest brother, and really from Peter also to the Apostle Paul going forward. Peter goes into hiding somewhere. We don't know where. Really no one. Historians don't really even have a clue. He does reappear in Jerusalem some years later. But it is a transition at this time. So now the story, like a movie, goes to a subplot. It's not all the story. This all goes together. And we pan over to Herod, the man who killed James and imprisoned Peter, who's now probably sulking. I mean, literally, probably sulking over the loss of Peter. And he retreats to his um, a city of respite. He has a palace there to Caesarea. It's there on the sea. It's a beautiful place. For reasons we do not know, he becomes angry with the citizens of Tyre and Sidon. And they supplied grain, so he had stopped the grain. These people needed food, so they politically navigated through his chamberlain, which is a fancy word for assistant, uh, a, a meeting with Herod, and they arranged the meeting, and they get things patched up, and Herod lets the grain flow back. I'm going to assume the delegation was probably still there, and Herod decides to assert himself in pomp and circumstance. And Josephus, a historian who's quite accurate, tells us that um, Herod arrays himself in a garment made of silver. Now, somehow silver is embroidered in this, and he comes out at the perfect time, the light shines, and he glows like an angel, and he begins to deliver this oration. And in, you know, it's the way people can sometimes be. You know, they, they want to applaud and, you know, he's happy, we're happy. So they say, it is the voice of a God. And Herod eats it up. And the Bible says because he did not rebuke them, he did not give God glory, he did not deflect the praise, that an angel struck him down and he was eaten of worms. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. Again, Josephus tells us that he... Uh, in his history, that from that oration, it took five days for him to die. Um, forgive me. He probably had intestinal worms, which would not have been completely uncommon that day. And something could have burst in his bowels, and he dies a gruesome death. In the middle of all that story, retold, verse 24. But the word of God multiplied. Amen. It was spread. And... Uh, Understanding the book of Acts about that, the spread of the gospel, a stage is set, a transition occurs. From this day forward, a trio is born, John, Mark, Barnabas, and Paul. And to get these men going forth from Antioch would begin a series of missionary journeys. Of course, we know John Mark would falter, but he would get, go back again with Barnabas in time. And so I'm reading this story and retold it and looking for application for us. It's a fascinating story. And, and, and I, I see some themes here about the importance of prayer. And here, of course, it's done imperfectly. It's the kind of prayer that asks for things but doesn't believe when it, when it arrives. But there's a theme, a subplot of prayer. There's, there's, of course, this big theme of fighting against God and the consequences that come when someone fights against God. But again, the theme of Acts and really throughout the whole text is about this. I want you to just go up 20,000 feet and look at the story. What's the story about? The story is about the sovereignty of God and His control above all 
human intervention above all human circumstance to still accomplish his purposes no matter what people do. James was killed, but the gospel went forward. Peter was delivered, but the gospel goes forward. Herod fights against God, but the gospel goes forward. Presiding all above the affairs of mankind sits an omnipotent, omniscient, mighty, majestic God who rules over the affairs of men. And nothing catches him off guard. He, he watches over the church as it's growing. Here we see Herod's persecutions, James' demise, Peter's imprisonment, and the Jews' angst with the church. And yet God wins and rises above it all. But the church continues to grow. I, I think a simple lesson for us here today is one about rest and, and solace and trust and faith. I think the lesson is this. There is wisdom for us in understanding and I'll say this, aligning ourselves with the purposes of God. I think there's wisdom for us today. In whatever life is throwing at us, good or bad, deliverance and or a form of death, that whatever's happening, that life is best lived when we align ourselves under the sovereignty and wisdom and the almighty hand of God. And there is incredible foolishness and consequence for aligning ourselves against him. In this text, from the beginning verses of chapter one of the book of Acts, a wave is forming. And, and Jesus is ascended and the Holy Spirit comes down and, and, and the great commission is given. And though the wave be small, it begins to grow and it grows from 12 uh, to, to 20 to, to 200 to 500. Now, thousand, and, and the wave is going. And no matter what man can do, the wave cannot be stopped. And there's a great deal of wisdom in riding the wave rather than combating against it. So in this way, I would say, you and I in life, okay, let's just look backward one week. Life is uncertain, is it not? I got up last week, Father's Day, I was so excited to get my Father's Day gift. <clears throat> Spending time with my kids, coming here and enjoying the day with you. And we had services in the dark. It was crazy. It was fun, but it was crazy. Life is uncertain under the sun. In my 59 years of life, life has brought incredible blessing. And life has brought some hardships and heartache and heartbreak. I've experienced some wonderful things, and I've experienced some hard things. The death of James. I've seen it. Good people, gone. And I've seen the deliverance of Peter. I've seen unimaginable miracles happen in this church family, for other people, and, and just incredible deliverance. And there's both in life. There's the death of James and the preservation of Peter. Justices and injustice will occur, but in every instance, God is still in control. And in evil times, he's in no less control. 
Sometimes we fret about the government, and we fret about things, and I'm not saying it's wrong not to be concerned, but you and I can get so worked up and stood up about so many things in this world, but hey, look here for a second. God is in control. And we may not quite be able to grasp, you know, our perspective is James died. Another perspective is this, James got to go to heaven. I mean, it's, it's all about perspective. We look at some things as tragedies, and no doubt they are, especially for those who are left behind. But the great reality is this man is now walking with his Savior. God's purposes are accomplished. He was rewarded. There is great good here as well. And, and the truth and the encouragement I have for us today is this. There is great wisdom and solace of heart when we understand that God is sovereign and we align ourselves. We orient ourselves to that truth. We understand that God giveth and that God taketh away. But it is always best to bless the Lord in the midst of all of it. It is best for our hearts. It is best for our soul. It is best for those around us. It is best for a watching world that when no matter what life gives, and I mean, it, it, it's difficult to do sometimes in the best of times, to always trust God, to bless Him, to seek His help. To always be dependent upon Him in good times and in bad. We should always have an orientation towards Christ. In 25 years of ministry almost, here's what I have observed. In the text, I have observed people once again delivered. Prayers answered. People rejoicing. And we all cry out in that time, God is good. And that's right to say that. He is. And man, I've seen loss. Haven't we? You stick around one place long enough, you experience it all. And we've seen loss and injury. But I've also seen grace in the midst of it. I've seen people rise up and bless the Lord. You know, like David did in the loss of his son. Like Job did after his endeavor. And, and, and they're, they're just this shining beacon of grace in the night. I've seen that. I see some people, though, in tragedy, lives were ruined and they became bitter. They had an insult to injury with a second evil. And that was one of the heart. I've seen people have difficulty come and compromise their principles. And to avoid the death of James or Peter, they just compromise. And I've seen a few people in hard times rattled by it. Lord gets their attention and they go, they go back to the Lord again and walk with Him. You know, Peter, put this all in context now. 1 Peter chapter 5, this man who's been in prison three times, beaten, says this, cast all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. And I think Peter cast his care when times are good. And I think Peter cast his care when times are bad. Like the Apostle Paul who said, rejoice in all things, rejoice evermore. His incredible chapter in Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, though I am weak, yet I am strong. Um, you know, he, Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who has strengthened me. And he was talking about good times and bad, and he articulated that. See, what, what, is, what, is the, what is the point of a life with, with the purpose of God? What, what, what am I saying? I'm saying that no matter what life brings you, you can have peace of heart. You have a peace that passes all understanding. 
We're too caught up in circumstances, both good and bad. But, but there needs to be a steadiness to our lives, a, a continual growth, a, a continual dependence upon God, no matter what life brings. I've seen as many people taken away from God in good times as I have in bad. It, it's steady. It's persevering. It's, it's trusting in Him. It's understanding that, hey, this is what God's brought me. I don't understand it. It's difficult. It's hard. But I, I, yet though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. But the other the other alternative when these things come to our life is death and ruin and bitterness and loss. When we fight against what God is doing like Herod did, things die. I try to think about this. And uh, I don't mean to use the recent illustrations too much. So this last week, you know, we all kind of go through a, a unique trial together and the storm comes. I don't know if you remember a flatline storm like this in Oklahoma before. I know tornadoes, but I don't know 100 miles hour. This is like a hurricane last week, you know. And of course, the, the aftermath of that is there's just trees down all over the city. Most all of us know something about that. And here's how I thought about this. this I, I, I picture this because we had a tree in our, our yard that was knocked over. In my neighborhood, here's what fell. The trees that fell, in part, were poorly rooted. A lot of them were near streets. Roots didn't go as deep. They're poorly rooted. The one in my backyard had some rot in it. Somebody had hit it. And so there's a weakened section at the bottom of it. And that's where, that's where it broke. Some of the trees, now I'm thinking of some license here, stood too proudly. Big trees, bold, so big and bold they couldn't bend. So in the pressure they snapped. But those that were soft, pliable, those that yielded to the storm, survived. Oh, they swayed and they bent. And there were some branches broken, but they, after the storm passed, they still stood. I'm taking liberty with the illustration, it fails to a point, but you get the point. When life blows against us, oh, it's going to blow. And I, in good ways and bad. If in pride we stand up like a Herod and say, I will not bend. If we pump our fists at God in bad, bad times, how could you do this to me? When we oppose what God is doing, and, and I don't necessarily mean an antagonistic evil, but I just mean in ambivalence and indifference sometimes. I'm just, so what I'm going to do? You might break. But no matter what God brings your way, if you can trust in Him, you can keep a soft heart, you can be pliable. Whether it's the release of Peter or the death of James, I think most of the storms of life um, we could survive. And here's what's crazy. Uh, this is a scientific reality. S trees that survive a storm like this one, the response is this, is to grow the roots even deeper. It's entirely possible to go through a really hard time and be better for it. I, 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 I'm going to finish with this. I'm going to do Jesse's, I'm done. 
Okay, look up here. What is what has the Lord brought into your life recently? What's come your way? Is there a circumstance that you're struggling to yield to? That you're struggling to trust God? That you're you just you just kind of want to shake your fist? Or maybe you're just like, I'm gonna tune God out? Is your heart in a place where it can bend a little bit? And if, if life is good, are you still saying it's close to him if things weren't? See, there's just saying God's in control. He's got it. And the gospel's gonna grow. His purpose is gonna happen. And, and here's the he just, just as he has a plan for the gospel, he has a plan for your life. In the same way. And you can yield to it, and you can trust him. And you can bow the knee and bow the heart and bow the head and, and be better. Or you can just fight it. You can resist it. And that's not going to go good for you. So today, the invitation is this. If you need to bend, let's bend. If you need to kneel, let's kneel. Let's align ourselves with what God's doing. Because He's doing something in your life, in this church, and in this world. No sense fighting it. Let me ask you to stand this morning, if you would.